Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 606th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who brings gardening methods full circle. We're talking with Crystal Stevens about regenerative urban farming. Crystal lives along the bluffs of the mighty Mississippi River in Godfrey, Illinois, with her husband and two children. She is an author, an artist and art teacher, a folk herbalist, a regenerative farmer, a permaculturist, and more. She has written three books published by New Society Publishers, Grow, Create, Inspire, Worms at Work, and her latest, Your Edible Yard. Crystal speaks at conferences and Mother Earth news fairs across the United States and has been teaching a Resilient Living Workshop series for over a decade. Welcome to the show today, Crystal. Are you ready to rock? Absolutely. What an honor. Thank you. Oh, yeah, you bet. Excited to have you. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure. I would love to. So yes, my husband and I co-founded a a business called Flourish, and I also co-founded the Tend and Flourish School of Botanicals with my business partner, Alex Quitham. So we run uh, an herb school here in the Midwest where participants get to come and see the herbs growing. We learn how to make tinctures, teas, topical applications. And so that's a major part of our farming business. Nice. And you, and we mentioned it in your intro, you deal with regenerative. So can you tell me what regenerative means to you? Sure. So we have a strong focus on soil health, building soil organic matter, and uh, really trying to work with nature rather than against it and look at some of the other permaculture principles and design elements in terms of leaving the land better than we find it eventually. Uh Also figuring how how we can increase soil health, you know, channel water accordingly. And we're trying to all while renting the land. So it's a challenge to be renters and not have and not be able to do that permanent change in terms of design. But we're making the most of what we can with what we have. (laughs) Oh well you know that's what there is for us to do, right? Definitely. Yeah. And this, what is, so 
regenerative to me, well, I, let me actually step back. I stumbled across the word regenerative in 1991 when I did my first permaculture design course. And for me, it was a holy shamoly Batman. I know, rather than another expletive. There's actually something that points to the way that I think. So when I discovered regenerative and permaculture, it was like, yeah, this is exactly how I think. So for me, it's this circular notion like nature. You know, in, in the human condition, all of our systems that we've set up on the planet are linear or flat, and they all end. And in nature, they're all circular, so they keep going. Can you speak to that a little more? Sure. I agree wholeheartedly. That is a beautiful concept. And I will mention that I learned the, well, I used to say the word sustainable all the time. And my, one of my permaculture teachers, Jason Gerhardt, he actually learned this statement from another teacher, which I can't remember his name, but he said, you know, humans are in a degenerative state. We're trying to get to sustainable. And if you're at sustainable, that's great, but there's one more step, regenerative. And if you approach someone and says, how's your marriage? And they say, oh, it's sustainable. <laughs> you know, you're coming from a place of just barely hanging on. Right? You're, you're not feeding it. You're not making it whole. You're not putting in the work to make it a long-term regenerative relationship. So our goal as humans, in my opinion, should be to get to a place where we are making it regenerative. Like you mentioned, that closed loop system. When I, I often speak about I'm not a great big fan of the word sustainable because simply sustains the mess we've created. Yes. Regenerative, hopefully, will take us out of the mess we've created. That's a beautiful way to look at it, yeah. And you teach about edible landscaping. In fact, I have your book here. It's a beautiful book called Your Edible Yard, Landscaping with Fruits and Vegetables. First of all, I am a huge proponent of if you're going to grow something and water it, it dang well better be edible. And what do you mean by edible landscaping? Working as a farmer for so long, you know, it it kind of gets ingrained in your mind, body, spirit that we need to be more self-sufficient as a human species. We need to be able to grow our own food. And it, while it's wonderful to support your local farmers, I think it's a, something that everyone should be doing is growing their own food. And really, it would solve a lot of the world's problems if, if everyone had that accessibility to grow their own food. I understand that some people live in apartments and, you know, it's not feasible for some people. But it is so important to know that process. Uh, the seed to table process. And when I mention edible landscaping, I just look at every available space surrounding your house as potential for creating absolute abundance. And so it could be anything from turning the lawn to a garden, all the way to making a very gorgeous landscape out of fruit and nut producing crops or, you know, perennial vegetables or whatever you choose to put in your edible landscape. There's plenty of things that don't do well, <laughs> that, that don't look that nice, right. but there's lot, such an abundance of things that really do look gorgeous in a landscape. For instance, Juneberries, a very prolific shrub that produces these delicious berries, hundreds of berries, and it's just such a great one for the landscape. Well, I don't want to step past pots. So if you live in an apartment with a sunny balcony, you could grow things in pots, and most often flowers are grown in pots. But this year, Heidi and I grew lettuce in pots. So that's a possibility, right? 
Definitely. Yeah, there's so many possibilities. In fact, my business partner with the Tend Employer School, she had a what she called the Humphrey Street Jungle. And it was she had about a hundred pots up there on her balcony. And wow. it was just a, you know, six by four spot, but she maximized their growing space tremendously, her and her partner. Wow, how cool is that? I tell people all the time the simplest thing to grow and the most expensive thing to buy are herbs. Oh yeah, <laughs> definitely. Right, and you can grow herbs in a sunny windowsill. What What's your favorite one to grow in a, in a windowsill? Oh, basil. It's so simple. Yeah. Plus, you know, you go to the grocery store and for an organic packet of basil with two ounces in it, it's four bucks. Yes, <laughs> so true. You have a chapter in your book that I'm particularly fascinated about. It's chapter two. It shouldn't be a crime to grow vegetables. Tell me about that. We've heard so many stories about HOA regulations and people getting fined for having front yard gardens. It really is an awful set of regulations. I personally feel wholeheartedly that people should be able to grow their own food wherever they please. And uh, because of some homeowners association rules, laws, regulations, you know, neighbors complain about 12 foot sunflower, 12 feet sunflowers and, you know, unkempt yards. Really, anyone who has a garden knows that weeds can get out of control, especially during the peak of the garden. But I truly feel that we need to be changing those laws and regulations. Yeah, I actually did a run in with the uh, Arizona legislature about 10 years ago because there are literally HOAs in the state where it's illegal for you to grow food in your yard. Well, all right. So let me actually change that. HOAs aren't laws. It's regulations for the Homeowners Association. So the Homeowners Association says you can't grow food in your yard. And that is just wrong. And so, you know, my run in with the legislature, I ran it up the flagpole and they basically everybody was telling me, good luck. You're not getting anywhere with that. So what we've done is I've encouraged people from the bottom up to work with your HOA to get those rules changed for your HOA. And an acquaintance of mine out in Chandler, Arizona, has chickens in his HOA and actually has enrolled his neighbors in keeping chickens as well. Six of of his other neighbors have chickens in their backyard as well in an HOA. And they just changed the rules. So it is possible. That's great. I really love the people power when you unify as a group and right yeah it's just important for us to be working together free will yeah (laughs) you have some recommendations on how to build your gardens and urban farms without breaking our pocketbooks can you talk more about that sure so there's resources all around us you know in the desert it's a little bit different for you all but here in the midwest you know, the leaves fall in typically the fall or autumn season, people rake their lawns and put the bags of leaves by the side of the yard, you know, and the truck comes and picks them up. And that's a valuable resource. So I always joke around that most couples in their 20s were coming in at 4 a.m. My husband and I were going out at 4 a.m., grabbing <laughs> right? the lot leaf and lawn bags, yes. uh, going on our little 4 a.m. dates to get the lawn bags before they went to the truck. And so we would collect them all, start big windrows and compost piles to build healthy soil and fertilize. Same with grass clippings, same with 
burlap sacks that could be used for weed suppression. Coffee roasters often give those away. Chip mulch is a, is a valuable resource when they're trimming tree lines, trimming trees near the power lines. They often have to go and pay to dump their chip mulch. Well, if you flag a landscaper down mm-hmm. and say, hey, could you drop these off at this address? More than likely, they're, they're going to say yes, and they'll drop it off that afternoon. So there's so many valuable resources to build soil organic matter, which in turn will provide healthier gardens. Yeah. So tell me about what happens when you put 12 inches of chip mulch or woody mulch on top of dirt. What happens at that interface? Right. So I look at it from the perspective of if you're first starting out, if you put it right down on grass or on dirt, uh, you can smother the weeds pretty significantly. And it doesn't take long, maybe about six months for those chips to start decomposing and building soil organic matter. So you're with the notion that it takes 500 years for 1.5 centimeters of topsoil to form, you know, it's, it's a responsibility an innate responsibility of people who really care about the environment to help build that soil organic matter wherever they are in whatever pocket of the world. So adding organic material helps to build soil over time. And so you're smothering the weeds and eventually you can plant in that spot once it starts to decompose. But the chip mulch actually provides a a little habitat or, or an environment for microbes and mycelium to really go to town. So if you've ever dropped your chip mulch and made it a foot tall, about six months later, you'll if you scratch that where the dirt meets the uh, chip mulch, you'll uh-huh. see the mycelial network start to, you'll see the white strands and you'll see all the soil life start to take place. Yeah. And one of the, you keep saying mycelium, that's like in the realm of mushrooms, right? Yes. Yeah, so it's the mycelial network is how the, the mushroom layer and the mycelial layer, how it communicates with plants and trees and it's food for microbes and it, they're the decomposers. So they decompose. There's so many fascinating things about mycelium. So it's good to have mushrooms growing in your yard. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I get this question a lot. Oh my gosh, I got mushrooms growing in my yard. How do I kill them? And I respond by saying, if you got mushrooms, you're doing something right. Yeah. And you talk a lot about medicinal herbs. Why is it important to incorporate them into our spaces? I really feel passionate about medicinal herbs, partially because I've been influenced them by them over the years and have had direct experience with how much they affect healing in the human body. But also a lot of medicinals serve multiple purposes. For instance, a lot of them go to flower and attract beneficial insects and pollinators. And having, you know, taking charge of your health through food as medicine, if you're already gardening, then you know the importance of eating the rainbow, but you could take it a step further by integrating medicinal herbs that are going to be helpful for a variety of ailments including cold and flu symptoms. You know, Mm. there's herbs that can help stop bleeding if you get a cut in the garden. There's herbs that can help heal broken bones if you put it as a poultice topically. So it just, they serve such a a beautiful variety of healing certain ailments. And do you have a favorite herb or plant to grow in your garden? Ooh, the favorite aromatic plant is lemon verbena. It is such a gorgeous, aroma and it the flavor is outstanding you can 
use it for culinary purposes to, to flavor things in beautiful ways as a simple summer tea and to treat cold and flu symptoms as well. Oh, nice. And your favorite edible? Ooh, <laughs> elderberry. Well, it's a medicinal as well, but I love elderberry so much. Nice. Imagine I'm walking down your driveway. I've never been there. This is the first time. What am I going to see as I arrive at your farm? What's your farm look like? Well, we're at the end of a long driveway. And off to the left is a huge open yard, which is very sad to look at. But we're renters, and that's the one caveat. Our landlord said we could not grow in that particular area. It's a lawn, which it pains me (laughs) because I see so much potential. I see a high tunnel, and I see rows. Uh, So that's open. Mm -hmm. And then to the right, we actually have a lot of perennials, blackberries on a trellis. And at the base of the blackberries, we have echinacea and flowers and mullein. And then if you go into the garden, we've got rows that are kind of contoured with the slope. So we've got slope happening, but we're trying to slow the flow of water and prevent erosion by Uh planting with contour. And then we have some of it in landscape fabric. And I don't necessarily like putting plastic in the environment. However, uh, before we moved here, that was a overtaken grassland area that had invasive grasses that you wouldn't be able to garden in if you tried. So so we built raised beds and then placed over it uh, landscape fabric and we grow our tomatoes and peppers and squash in that area. And then we have edible landscaping all around the house. We've got a chicken run. Uh, We've got a whole sloping hillside full of elderberries, over a hundred elderberries. Wow. Uh, it's, it's really quite beautiful, but again, we're renting, so <laughs> inevitably would like to purchase this place, and we're trying, but it is, we keep investing more time and, and a little bit of money. I mean, some of the elderberry, cut, the cuttings are free, so right. we try to keep things budget-friendly. So you're, all right, I'm going to go down that path. You're taking elderberry cuttings, rooting them, and growing them out? Yes. One of the cool things about elderberry is that in the winter when they're dormant, you can actually prune them back all the way to the ground. And then you cut them in about one foot sections, making sure that there's two terminal bud nodes per section. And then you can actually take that stick. And I learned from my mentor, Terry Durham of River Hills Harvest, if you cut the bottom of the plant on an angle, you'll know which way to stick it right into the ground. Without any hesitation, you just stick it right in there. So I cut them in a way that the bottom of the cutting has an angle cut and the Uh top of it has a flat cut. Then I take that stick and stick it right in the ground where I want to plant. Of course, I have my my beds preformed before I plant it. So the the same day you prune them all the way back is the same day you plant them in the ground. And now they're all leafing out and they look really healthy. One of the key pieces that you said there, I think, is the terminal bud or the node. You need to make sure that there's one of those in the ground, correct? So yes, you do. And then they, what you want them to point upward like you're holding a peace sign. Right. And those, those terminal buds or nodes, how do people recognize those? Because that's an important piece of it. Yeah, they just look like little buds of a tree. It's that simple. And they're on opposite sides. So they're, they have an opposite bud pattern. Got it. And then that's where the roots come from for the ones that are underground, right? The roots can actually come from a a multitude of of sections. It can come from the stem itself. I've actually um, taken cuttings and putting them right in water. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it comes from 
the bottom terminal bud. Other times it comes directly from the outer surface of the bottom cut. So it depends. Wow. Oh, that's awesome. And you have an epic about a, a disease in your family. Tell me about what happened there. Sure. So in 2000, the year 2000, my father was diagnosed with lung cancer. Mm. And we lived in the inner city. We didn't really garden except for my mother grew iris flowers. Uh, we had kind of a shade yard. So we didn't really have uh, a space to garden. We had dogs. So my father was diagnosed with lung cancer, given six months to live by the wow. VA hospital. And they encouraged chemo and radiation. Well, we had had seen other family members and friends really suffer from the chemo and radiation. And so we tried to, we really did talk my father into just saying, hey, let's try some alternatives. So we did some research. I applied to every health food store within a 50 mile radius. I got called in on one and got hired on the spot at a juice bar. And which was also a health food store, Wild Oats at the time, uh-huh. and was able to get a 20% discount on all organic food supplements. And then I was able to bring him 24 ounces of fresh pressed juice every day. My mother made calls and got him set up with an acupuncturist that we found out about through a family friend. He started taking Chinese herbal medicine. He quit smoking, which was, he was a huge chain smoker. And we just did a lot of lifestyle switches. Uh-huh. And I learned about Mullen from being on the Big Mountain Indian Reservation years prior with my high school instructor. I was asked to be a nanny for his children. Him and his wife invited me out there, and I w- was able to learn from the medicine man, Tom Bodoni, about Mullen. And he said that it was a lung tonic and that it really helped a lot of elders in their community with their lungs. And so I encouraged my father to start taking Mullen tea and he started smoking Mullen to offset the tobacco because he was still addicted. And so Uh anyway, fast forward, he lived an additional five years from those modalities combined. And so that shaped and formed my life path and gave me that aha moment where I felt, you know, we need to, as as a human race, go back to the roots and go back to what we used to do to treat these ailments. And it it gave him five months where he was able to, you know, go to Alaska for a month and go see the Grand Canyon for the first time. And had he not had that extra five years, you know, he he wouldn't have fulfilled some of the things he had on his list. Wow, that's amazing. So no chemo, he just went organic and treated it naturally and lived a great five years. Yes, and the odds were stacked against him. He was a Vietnam vet exposed to Agent Orange. Mm -hmm. He was a carpenter exposed to asbestos and a chain smoker for since he was age 14. Wow. And how come you haven't written a book about that? That's a story to write. (laughs) It, it, there's a chapter on it in uh, Grow, Create, Inspire as part of the inspirational story. Ah, perfect. Perfect. As you were sharing that, it occurred to me that we haven't discussed. So I just always assumed you lived on a farm, but you just said you lived in the city. And now 20 years later, you have a farm that you're running. How did that happen? Yeah. Uh, farming was always in my family, but it skipped two generations. So 
Uh, my great-grandparents had a farm. My grandmother did not. I'm sorry. My great-great-grandparents had a farm. My great-grandmother lived in a suburban community. My grandmother lived in the city. My mother lived in the city. So it skipped actually three generations, but I got to visit that family farm at a young age and, and really fell in love with the land. I didn't spend much time there. And then, you know, my, my mother encouraging me to help her garden with flowers. I ended up naming my daughter Iris because of that experience. Mm, nice. But when I when I started dating my husband, we realized we had similar dreams of starting a farm together, living on some land, you know, growing our own food and, and being kind of farmsteaders. I don't like the word homesteader, but farmsteader sounds sounds cool to me. <laughs> right. So how did you when did it happen that you moved from the city to the farm? When we first started dating, we started talking about moving out to the country, and we moved out to Salem, Missouri. And um, my husband got a job through AmeriCorps doing a community garden and trying to increase the farmer's market attendance out there. And I was able to grow. We rented the house and 40 acres out there, which was only $675 at the time, which was amazing. Holy Yeah. And we only grew about an acre garden, uh, but we were able to take it to farmer's market. And then the the job uh, didn't renew. So we we kind of had to reshift and we actually got hired on at a farm in Godfrey, Illinois. And we ran a CSA for seven years there together and then went to a different farm. And uh, now we're on some land that we rent. So it's kind of been a long journey of farming together. So you've been doing this a long time. Yeah, since about 2009, I would say. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. When I, and I know it's a big deal to actually write a book, especially the magnitude of books that you've written. So I just want to cover, you have three great books out. I want to cover them real quickly so you can tell us what, what, what each book is about. So let's start with Grow, Create, Inspire. Yes. Yeah, so that one, I just felt the urge to share how farming and gardening and and really growing your own medicine changed my life and wanted to inspire others to you know take hold of their health and and take hold of their ability to be self-sufficient and so the first part of it is grow so it tells you how to grow everything from asparagus to zucchini and everything in between including medicinal herbs and culinary herbs and then the create section has a lot of recipes, farm to table recipes, nice. and recipes on how to make your own lotion, soap, and natural household cleaners. And then the inspire section has uh, stories that have inspired me throughout the years and inspirational stories that someone might read and say, hey, I can do that. And, I, and this can be my starting point. I can take that leap. So that's the first book. And the second one is Worms at Work, which is all about vermicomposting and vermiculture and, you know, uh, composting with worms. And then the third one is Your Edible Yard, which is my personal favorite because it is a full color. I took the photos for it and did the illustrations. And so it's a really, I spent a lot of time and effort in that one and, and really telling people how to, or inviting people how to garden in accessible ways that are easy to do. And you can, you know, gather resources that are budget friendly from around the community. Well, I'm, so I'm thumbing through the book right now and there are hundreds of pictures in this book. Did you take all of them? I did. Oh, this has got to be a two year photography project. 
Not, <laughs> Definitely. Not including the writing part, right? And beautiful pictures. Thank you. And I do. Ha I know you're going to grumble a little bit because we've pre had this conversation previously. But the cover is you on. We've got you on the cover holding what amaranth. Yes. <laughs> this is a great picture of you. This this picture shares with the world who you are inside. I mean, you get a great smile. And yeah, so I, I just, when, when the book arrived, it was like, oh man, I want to talk to her. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, you bet. I don't feel the same about it, but thank you. I know. And that's why, that is why I brought it up because it is such a great picture and uh, you know, it's inspiring. And thank you. The work that you do is inspiring, especially that you're doing it on a piece of rented land. That's huge. Thank you so much. I know you talk about something called a dynamic accumulator. I've heard you mention that in our other conversations. I want to dive in because that's a good learning piece for people about what are dynamic accumulators and what's their value. My favorite dynamic accumulator, and there are many others, is Comfrey, Symphytum officinal. It's a phenomenal, it's what we call a permaculture darling. It's one of the great plants that you can have for multiple purposes. So not only is it a topical, uh, wonderful medicinal plant, it attracts pollinators, it is a perennial, it's drought tolerant, disease resistant, but it's also a dynamic accumulator, meaning that its roots, it has this really wonderful root system that actually uptakes nutrients, minerals, trace elements, trace minerals, and brings it from the soil up into the stems, stalks, leaves, and makes it bioavailable for plants when you chop and drop it. So when you chop and drop it, when it's in that really green, vibrant, leafy stage, uh -huh. you can chop it and drop it right around fruit trees as a natural fertilizer. Nice. So really what these are, are yard miners. They're yeah. actually digging in the dirt, harvesting the nutrients for us to use them elsewhere in our yard, in our compost pile or in our mulching. Yeah, they make great weed suppression uh, layers as well. So if you wanted to, if you have a ton of comfrey, you could chop and drop and line it in your pathways so that it suppresses the weeds and adds mm -hmm. some nutrients. Mm -hmm. When you, so you mentioned weeds. I love weeds. Uh, a lot of them are edible. Weeds are pioneer species. That means they show up first and they do the heavy digging. And one of the reasons I like weeds is because they're mining those nutrients out of the soil. We chop the weeds down. We either give them to the chickens, drop them in place, or put them in the compost pile. That's a, another great accumulator. What, what are some others? Uh, comfrey is my favorite, but I've, you know, yellow dock, I'm sure it does the same thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, dandelion we see from the yard, chicory, I'm sure all the ones with those nice tap roots do, do that for the soil as well. Yeah. One of the things that grows really well here as a weed, and I've seen these literally six feet tall, is mallow. Ooh. It's, yeah, it's high in beta carotene. So it's good for your eyes and it puts down a tap root. So if you have a mallow plant that is three feet tall, it could very well have a three foot long tap root that you, you basically, what I do is I cut them off right below the soil level that kills the weed, but it leaves the root in the ground, adding compost right in the soil. Wow. Is that the Malvaceae family, the, the marshmallow, or is that something different? Oh, good question. It's got big round leaves. And uh, I noticed in our conversation that you quote a lot of the, the uh, scientific names for plants. 
I just look at the look at it and say, oh, that's a dandelion or that's a mallow. So <laughs> I'm interested in learning more about this plant. <laughs> ah, there you go. All right. Well, we can do that. All right. We can do that. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. Sure. So uh, our first year operating our own farm, we actually had some land access at the previous farm we ran. I mentioned we ran a CSA for seven years. Mm-hmm. We left that because we, we couldn't afford to rent in town with that income. We had on-site housing that was no longer available because it was kind of falling apart. So, so we had to look elsewhere, but our income didn't support the ability to rent. So um, when we launched our own business, we asked if we could use some of that land to grow. And we were able to, for one season, use some of that land. Well, we kind of went overboard and planted 16 rows and we, you know, plugged them all in by hand. And I started all the seedlings in the greenhouse that we had accessibility to. And we planted so many things while we we were also planting all the things that I told you when I gave the virtual walk <laughs> of our farm here. Uh-huh. And what happened was the weeds there at the previous farm just got, they were so intense mm. that we lost pretty much everything mm. except for four rows. So we, we lost three fourths of the things because we just went too big that first year because we were doing everything by hand at the place we rent. We don't have a tractor or tiller or anything like that. We were building everything from ground up. And over at the other farm, we had access to a tractor. So we got our, you know, (laughs) got ahead of ourselves. So that was a huge failure. We lost three fourths of our crops that I spent hours and hours in the greenhouse sowing those and transplanted them and watered them. And and they just got overtaken by about chest high weeds within a matter of one month. So got away from us. <laughs> so <laughs> hindsight, I would have started a little smaller, done a row or two at a time. But because the tractor was available, we just kind of went to town on it. <laughs> yeah, so that's always a big one. You have to make sure that you're managing out the size of your expectation with the size of what you can actually get done. Yes. And what do you consider your biggest success? Well, I think getting to the point now where I can be self-employed and have multiple streams of income, diversified income streams. You know, I have about six different projects going on at any given time, but I get to create my own schedule. I get to be there for my children when they need me. I get to make them breakfast, lunch, and dinner while managing, you know, six different projects. And it's really nice to just have the autonomy. Right. And that's been a long process where I've worked really hard to be able to do that. So I think that that is one of them. So there's a certain amount of freedom that comes with that. Yes. Yeah. I've been uh, self-employed since I was 15 years old, which was 45 years ago. That's and, phenomenal. And that is, and I've had, a, you know, I've had a couple of jobs along the way and I always felt trapped in a job when I had to be someplace. And so for those of you that are listening that are, feeling trapped, do what Crystal did. You can just jump in a little bit at a time and a little bit and a little bit, and there's a pathway out. Yeah. Do, do what you love. Uh, love what you do. You know, start small. If if you make it a, a side business, go ahead and start with that until you can save enough money to, with us, we just kind of quit our jobs. Uh, we were working at a farm where we were commuting 45 minutes each way every day for wow. two years. After we left the CSA farm, we 
commuted over to St. Louis and it just got to be too much. And so we both decided to just quit our jobs and we didn't have any savings. We had no money. We just started putting out feelers of people who wanted landscape installations. So that's one way to do it where you set up some landscaping jobs or edible landscaping jobs. You know, you have to have the LLC and the business insurance and all those things, but it is a, we started our business with no savings, no capital, nothing. (laughs) Just jumped in, but you had the experience. Yes. You actually went, you spent the time, you worked at a CSA, you learned what you needed to learn to be able to go and do that. Congratulations. Thank you. So what drives you? What's your big why in the world? Hmm, That's a great question. I think that just empowering others to take charge of their own health, empowering others to feel capable of growing their own food and medicine, and to see the eyes light up of the people that I teach and then them come back a year later and and tell me all the things they're doing. For instance, I gave one workshop and a woman yesterday I had a conversation with said, because of that one workshop and inspired me to start this business. Now she's started her own herb farm and just it's phenomenal. The impact you can make just by one sentence in a workshop. And I think just in inspiring and being the ripple and, and, being an earth steward, teaching my children all that I do. My son just started a GED program where he's going to do the solar trade uh, track. So that's a, it's a hybrid GED where he learns a trade and he's going to be a solar installer. So I mean, it's just so cool to be able to reach people in that way. Well, you know, trade schools and learning a trade, I think that's a big part of our future because, you know, recently I looked at, going and getting my PhD. I've been wanting, I got a master's degree about 15 years ago. I've been wanting to do a PhD. But when I looked at the price to get a PhD, it was going to cost me in excess of $100,000, right? And, you know, it's just, I took one look at that and it's like, all right, well, I don't have time for that. And I don't have the energy and money for that. And what I'm finding is that there is so much that we can learn in trade schools, but online as well. Yes. It's very amazing to, to see how many people have started, you know, really successful companies with no bachelor's degree. And, right. you know, how many people are entrepreneurs with, with no college at whatsoever. Um, I, I have enough credit hours to have a bachelor's, but I never finished my bachelor's. And I just decided, you know, it came to the point where, what do you want to do with your life? And I wanted to write and teach. And I decided I, I was really considering going back to school. And then I just decided I'm going to start writing instead. And yeah. it, I, I don't feel that I need a bachelor's. And last year, it proved to be that case because I got offered a job as an ag adjunct faculty at a community college nice teaching about the things that i've been you know doing for for 10 plus years right with no degree so that's really you know it it meant it meant a lot because a lot of times i beat myself up for not going back to school but i really don't feel that i need to right yeah i did the adjunct professor thing at arizona state university for about five years and that's great yeah and so congratulations Thank you. Congratulations to you too. And mm. you don't need that PhD. <laughs> that, right. Well, you know what? The, when I went back to college, I also had enough 
credit hours that I'd accumulated over 20 years to get a bachelor's degree. And, you know, I still had to jump through some hoops to get my bachelor's degree. But and then I went and went on and got my master's degree. But it was because I wanted to learn. I wasn't going there to get a degree to get a job. I was going there to get a degree because I was very interested in learning. So it was a different motivation. And, you know, I loved I loved the school part in big part because it gave me a level to live up to in my learning that I don't get in the, you know, out in the world. You know, I'm, I'm kind of like you, we're kind of authorities at what we do. And so we have to figure out ways to push ourselves to learn more. And that was my way to get my master's degree was my way to push myself to learn more. That's great. Congratulations to you. That's a oh, really exciting path. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. And I, I, I miss the academic part, but I'm, I don't miss it enough to spend that much to get a PhD. <laughs> right. I actually had a, a scholarship, a partial scholarship to my dream school, uh, Evergreen State University. And I was all set up to do the Ecology of Hope with Nalini McCartney, who is a phenomenal teacher. And uh, two weeks before I was due to go to college, my father was diagnosed with lung cancer. Mm. And the story that I told you earlier in the yeah. podcast, uh, I decided to stay. And that was a huge sacrifice, but it was also, I've never changed that. You know, I, I would always choose family first. Uh, but I did miss out on that opportunity to go off to school. So I stayed home and did community college, which actually led me to some really amazing experiences as yeah. well. So I, uh, you know, the 127 credit hours I had when I ended up at Arizona State University, most of them came from a community college. That's great. Was it every, <laughs> uh, yeah, every time I was interested in learning something, I would go to the Phoenix College catalog to see what classes they offered. And I would just, you know, I'd spend the hundred bucks and I'd go take a class. You can't do that anymore. You have to, you know, there's all kinds of places online that you can learn, like Urban Farm U. But, yes. you know, college credits are no longer cheap. So, I'm, all right, let's move on. <laughs> Enough talk about college. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Oh, that's such a tricky question. That's why I ask it. It would be Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. No, 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 no. Hold on your time out. Okay. Did you really just say that? Yeah. The reason, the reason, this is only the second time in 600 episodes that this has happened. The reason that I asked this question, and I'm getting chills all the way down to my toes. The reason I asked this question is because I found that book in 1992. It changed my life forever. I have given away hundreds of copies oh of that book. It is no the way. most amazing story. Tell me about it. Why do you love it? Well, my dad and I read it together, and the Ishmael and the story of the but Ishmael was really, it pinpointed the fall of civilization to industrial agriculture. And, right. and then I became a farmer. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but really, I think my dad and I, my dad was a big Celestine Prophecies guy and Nostradamus oh, uh -huh. and Edgar Case, And he really, we got into all that stuff together and we would read chapters together. But the Daniel Quinn, just the story of examining the human race and where it went wrong and how... When man stopped, you know, providing for himself or, you know, the proverbial aspect, when man stopped providing for himself and outsourced that, that's when it kind of turned the corner to the industrial revolution. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, yeah. Yeah, I call the philosophy that I follow in my life Quinian philosophy. Oh, nice. Yeah, I've read 
pretty much everything that Daniel Quinn wrote. In fact, I even have a copy of his precursor book to Ishmael that I found online years ago, and I, I was able to meet him. He came to Phoenix, oh my gosh, maybe a decade ago, and gave a lecture, and I was right there as front and center, man. It was, uh, oh, yeah, so- yeah, wow, love that. Wasn't, wasn't there an Anthony Hopkins film made based upon the book? <sighs> kind of. It was a yes and no. A loose interpretation, kind of. Yeah, exactly. It was kind of disappointing. <laughs> I agree. There was a gorilla in it, right? Well, in the book there was. I can't remember in the movie. I just remembered watching it and being, all right, well, that that was interesting. (laughs) I watched it with my dad when I was, I think, 15 or 16. So Uh, I don't remember a lot of it. I don't either. That's all right. Well, oh my gosh. That is, uh, like I said, this is only the second time in 600 episodes that Somebody said Ishmael, and wow, it, it literally changed my life forever. It's The book's called Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. Stop what you're doing right now. Stop. All right, listen to the end of the podcast, but go get a book called Ishmael and read it. It will change your life forever, don't you think? Absolutely. Good job. Thank you. What one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Uh, start small. You know, we have a, this ingrained in us to, that we need to go so fast and get so much done. But really, uh, take some time to just sit in your garden and observe the sunlight, the, you know, the where the rain catches, just do some observing. And it is very hard to, to start small. But uh, if you right? start small, you get less overwhelmed in the summer when the weeds are growing and when there's so much to do, especially if you're just starting out. Yeah, Yeah, you've got to start small because if you don't, you'll take on too much and then you might fail at it and then you stop and then game over. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Crystal. Thank you. It was such an honor. Thank you so much. You bet. How can our listeners find you? They can find me at www.growcreateinspire.com. Or uh, shop books at shop.growcreateinspire.com. And on social media with the same handle, Grow, Create, Inspire. Awesome. Awesome. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash grow, create, inspire. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, Hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago. Then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring 
that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.